God is good to you. Free stuff. So, Gospel According to Jesus, we've been talking about this the last three weeks or so. We're looking simply at the red words, what Jesus has to say. My last three sermon titles have been, You Can't Keep the Idol. That stems from the rich young ruler. He loved his money more than he could ever want or love God. The second, one, second sermon we had in this series is, You Can't Keep Your Unfruitful Life. If it's real, uh, there will be fruit. But you remember what tears away or, or, or what pre prevents fruit, fruit from uh, coming to um, fruition in the professed believer's life. Affliction, persecution, worries, and riches will always reveal the false Christian. You remember what the text said in the parable of the soils? They were only temporary. They were only temporary. And when the hard stuff came and the love of money came, they abandoned um, the truth of the gospel. Last week we talked about the sermon titles, You Can't Keep Dabbling. And I, I got two or three comments from that C.S. Lewis analogy I gave you. Dabbling on the shore versus swimming in the deeps. Jesus says the true believer loves him more than his own family. Jesus says you have to pick up your cross and you have to die to yourself. Jesus says you have to sit down and count the cost here. This is what he says. You got to count the cost here. This is not some simple, easy, flippant, religious thing that we do. I know that's true for a lot of people. But if we're biblically literate, we understand. Jesus says, count the cost. I must be supreme in your life. This week's sermon, the title is, You Can't Keep Your Pseudo-Christianity. You can't keep it. Again, we must love Jesus supremely. So I hope you have your Bibles open. I haven't told you yet, but here we go. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, maybe the, the hub or the, yeah, let's, let's say, use the word hub of, of this series. Jesus preaches the best sermon in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount, and he closes it like this. You got to think about it. Why does Jesus closes the sermon like this. I want you to keep that in your mind as we take a look at it. I hate poetry. I don't like it. I like biblical poetry, but man-made or, you know, secular poetry, I've always hated it. I can't understand it. I don't know what they're talking about. It bores me. Maybe I'm too black and white, but, it, but in studying this text, a famous line in a poem came to my mind. You guys maybe will recognize it. Robert Frost, 20th century po uh, poet, American poet. He says, two roads diverged in the wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So tonight, just like there has been for the last three weeks, there's a fork in the road here. We all have to decide. And as you share the gospel with your friends and family, it's always a decision. You have to decide. The ball's always in your court. God says, here I am. Why then should you die? The ball's in your court. You must. In fact, you're going to see it. Matthew 7, verse 13 is where we're going to start. You have to take action. The very first word in my text is enter. You got to enter. You got you to gotta act. You got to exercise your will. So Jesus is saying that to us. So there are two roads here, the broad way and the narrow way. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. And I couldn't help but think of Frost's uh, poem. I don't know anything about him, and I don't know anything about the poem. I don't really care. I'm just making a point. 
if you go with Christ, it is the road less traveled. <laughs> Most, yeah, I know there, supposedly there are billions of Christians on the planet. Although when you really need one, you can barely find one, right? So um, it is the road less traveled. You are an alien. You are an exile. If you're, if you're truly a Christian, you are a sojourner and a pilgrim. I've often thought that Frost maybe have uh, plagiarized Jesus Christ here right out of Matthew 7 because this is what Jesus is saying. Man, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a narrow gate and a wide gate, right? There's one that people love and one that people don't love. One that people don't walk down. So I think he may have plagiarized Jesus, whether consciously or unconsciously. I want to say this as I introduce the text. I don't know how many of you have read this book. Um, it's been the best mover on our book table book shelf uh, for 15 years. Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. I highly commend it to you. Um, I've had more than one young person tell me it blew up their life. Or it was like a spiritual bomb going off in their life. I love to hear that. Don't you? Don't you love when spiritual bombs go off in your life? I love that. I love it when God does that. Right? When the bomb goes off. Or, you know, the light bulb. Bam! It comes on. I love it when he does that. So Piper is right when he says the majority of mankind, including much of professed Christianity, is living their one very precious, very short life in such a way that they are wasting it. He says, you ask your average person, you know, what does a good life look like? You get answers like this. Well, a good education, good husband and wife, a couple of good kids, a good job making good money, a nice home, some good friends, great vacation, uh, a fun, leisurely, well-funded retirement. These are the kinds of answers you get. What's missing in that list? God. You just don't hear it. God's missing. He is the, the conspicuous, conspicuous omission here. He is the glaring omission. No reference to God. And Piper goes on to say, this is not a life well spent. If you get all that other stuff, this is not a life well spent. It's a life wasted. If you die as the richest, most successful person in the history of the world, and you don't know Christ, it's dung. Okay? It's all a waste. It's all going to burn up. If you don't get Christ right, it doesn't matter what else you get right. It's just the truth, beloved. Listen to Piper. God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display His supreme excellence in all spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without this passion. Most people sleep by, slip by in life without this passion for God, spending their lives on trivial diversions, living for comfort and pleasure, squandering their days on bubbles that burst. I love that line. How many of you are chasing things that will burst? And you think they're going to make you happy, but these bubbles will burst ultimately. They will burst. Piper continues, God and Jesus Christ has unleashed us from such small dreams. We have been set free to live life the way God intended for His glory. It's the, it's the road less traveled. It's the narrow way. Right? I love that. So let me ask you in the beginning, which road are you on? Do your ideas of a life well spent look more like the world's ideas or those of Jesus? 
Are you living the gospel according to Jesus or according to some denomination? Are you still living the really small stuff, the herd dreams, or have you given your life away to Christ? Have you walked through the small gate? Are you on the narrow way? Are you on the broad way chasing all those bubbles that will burst? So as we've been seeing these last few weeks, Jesus never called anybody to be a church member. He's always called people to be disciples. Go and make what? Church members. No, that's not what he said. Go make disciples. What do disciples do? Disciples follow. This is what disciples do. They follow. Church, not all church members follow. All disciples follow. Okay? It's a huge distinction that we need to understand in the Bible. Disciples know Christ, they love Christ, they obey Christ, they walk with Christ, and as we've seen the last few weeks, they bear fruit. There's a godly fruit in their life. There's, a, there's that aroma Paul talks about, right, to the Corinthians? You smell like God. You just smell like God. This is why some people hate you before you even kind of get to know them very well. You smell like God. You convict them. They know they don't smell like God. And you convict them many times without having said very much at all. Jesus Christ preaches, like I said, the best sermon ever preached. And he closes with an exhortation, a warning, and an illustration. So here we go, Matthew 7, 13. Matthew 7, 13. you got to exercise your will. Enter, he says, by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And, oh, few are those who find it. So immediately we see that many are on the broad road. Few are on the narrow road. We kind of already know that, don't we, if we've lived very long as a Christian. So Jesus exhorts his hearers to enter. You, gotta, you have to respond to the gospel. Yes, we preach the whole gospel here. God is sovereign in salvation. We preach it all, man. We preach the big, mysterious, sovereign part. But we also preach that you must respond. It's on you to respond. You must respond to the gospel. You must enter in. This is the first thing Jesus says. Christianity, real Christianity, it's, it's always been a verb. It, 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 it is a verb, <laughs> okay? It's always a verb. Jesus says, wake up from your spiritual stupor and walk with me. You know, how, you know how he says it over in Luke 13, 24. Jesus says you have to what to enter into? You have to what to enter into the narrow gate. Anybody remember what he says over in Luke? You have to what? Strive. You have to strive. This is huge. You have to strive to enter into the narrow gate. It's the words he uses. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase there. Put your mind on, the life, on life with God. The, the way to life and to God is vigorous. It requires your total attention. I, let me ask you, is your Christianity vigorous? Is it vigorous? Yeah, that's a paraphrase, but it's a, it's a good paraphrase. Is it vigorous? It requires your total attention. Listen, you know this. You don't fall into being a Christian. You either want to be one more than anything else or you're not one. Okay? I know that's strong, but it's just true. You either want to be a Christian more than anything else in the whole world or you're not one. If you want something more than you want Jesus Christ, let's just be honest. 
Let's just be honest with ourselves. I don't know him yet, if that's how I feel. So are you vigorous in your pursuit of Jesus? Discipleship is not the prerequisite to salvation. Discipleship is the consequence of salvation, right? We don't have to become disciples to be saved. We have to become the disciples because we are. This is how it works in God's economy. It's like Frost's poem, there are two ways. One well-worn, the other not so much. Jesus is saying the same thing. There are two gates here. There are two ways. You decide. There's a fork in the road. You decide. One is wide and broad and many travel it. The other is small and narrow and few are those who find it. You guys remember Proverbs 16.25. There is a way which seems right to a man, but it ends in death. Man, you got to find God's way, right? You know, Gosh, I meet, I meet people. I've met, okay, I've been doing this a long time. My old man, blah, blah, blah. But you just meet people who think, you know, I'm just going to rely on my own subjective thoughts here. I've got a few presuppositions about life. The, I've learned a few things from the media. Life has taught me a few lessons. Yeah, okay, I know enough. I'm just going to navigate my life based on, on what I think. There's a way which seems right to a man, but it's, End is the way of death. There's only one way. We know we're Bible believers. There's not two ways or three or four or 20 or 100. There's one. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but by me, Jesus is the only way. It's not for everyone who says they believe in God. The narrow way is not for them. It's not for those who are merely religious and attend church when it's not too inconvenient. It's not for those who merely pray a prayer and get baptized. It's not for those. Those are all good things. But it's for those who enter in. Okay? It's for those who enter in the narrow gate it's a striving faith. It's a vigorous faith. Yeah. It's doing the Word of God. Secondly, Jesus gives two warnings. First, about false prophets and their ways, verses 15 to 20. Let me read that. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. You know, I can fool you. You can fool me. Nobody fools God. But God says, I can look at the life and I know. It's in, it's in your life. What you really believe is in your life. It's in your life. It's in your words. What you really believe, you know, not, what you, what, not, not the, the dogma you may, you may confess on Sunday, but what you really believe is what you do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. 
That's what you really believe. And listen, again, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not talking about perfection. None of us are perfect. We never arrive at perfection. We, we can't get to perfection as much as many of us would love to be perfect before God because our sin grieves us and it grieves him. But we will not arrive at perfection. We are in the sanctification fight. So I just want to make sure we all understand I'm not preaching perfection. None of us are going to arrive at that destination. But listen, one thing I hope anybody who comes through here understands, you can't be religious with God. He hates that. He hates that. You remember what he said to the Pharisees, Matthew 23. He blasted them with eight woes. He said, damned are you, damned are you, damned are you eight times. He says, you are sons of hell, the most religious men in the history of the world. He said, you are damned. Because you are self-righteous in your religion. Right? These are the false prophets of the days when Jesus walked the earth. They plagued. They've always plagued mankind. They plague us now in these last days, right? The Osteens and those guys, and there are many, many others. His name pops in my head. I'm sorry, but I can't help it. His name pops into my head. Um, these people who preach a false gospel, they are counterfeit prophets, uh, prophets and priests and preachers. Um, their teaching is everywhere. And I don't know what it's like in your country, but when I go into a Christian bookstore in the U.S., all of these false prophets are smiling down from me on the bestseller, bestseller rack, right? They're smiling down at me. And it's supposed to be a Christian store. Yeah. These false teachers are ubiquitous in these last days. Peter says their stains and blemishes, their springs without water, they're trained in greed. Jude says they're hidden reefs in the church. They're clouds without water. They're autumn trees without fruit. Jesus says you'll know the false prophets by their fruit. Right? And the same can be said about false Christians. We, we talked about this, was it last week or two weeks ago? John 15, I read John 15 to you. I think it was two weeks ago. The Judas branch, the false disciple, does not bear good fruit. There's no good fruit. He made a profession. He walked with Jesus for a couple of years, but there's no fruit. In fact, there's bad fruit. He betrays Christ. Every person ultimately reveals their own heart. It'll be revealed in their own life by their own actions. Right? Again, I can fool you. You can fool me. But... And here's the second warning. Let me read it to you. Verses 21 to 22. It's about false disciples. So we saw the false prophets. And he's going to warn us about false disciples. Look what he says. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, one of the most famous passages. This was the first text I ever preached, right? This is the first text I ever preached in the mid 80s. I don't remember the date, but it was the first text I ever preached. It always struck me. It was always so powerful. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? What? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Man, these guys are impressive. Their list is better than your list, I bet. How many of you have cast out demons? How many of you prophesied? 
What was the other one? How many of you have done a miracle? These guys did many miracles. Their list is way better than my list. Yeah, it was the first sermon I ever preached. I preached in my church that I was converted in, which was a liberal Baptist church. And uh, it was a labor of love to preach to these people who, by and large, in my view, were merely religious. So I did it as, a, as a, an act of love. And this is what you know, Jesus does. He loves people enough to hey, say, hey, man, you need to examine yourself, right? You need to look at your life. C.S. Lewis calls these kinds of Christians, he says, they're, they're, they're imaginary conversions, right? This is how he talks about it. Imaginary conversions. So these aren't just religious people in a generic sense. These are religious people in a Christian sense. Man, they're impressive Christians. Again, way better than you and me. Way better. They are... Impressive. The Lord is saying here that spiritual deception is real and it is rampant. It is pervasive. There are many who think they're Christians, but they're not. There are many who call Jesus Christ Lord, but it's only religion. They called him Lord. See what he, he says? They, they, they'll call him Lord. We did all of this stuff. We're calling you Lord. But not everyone who says Lord, verse 21, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, he who bears godly fruit. And what's this about? Verse 22, this false and counterfeited Christianity. What, is the, what does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 11. The Holy Spirit talks about false apostles and deceitful workers, right? And we also know from 1 Corinthians 11 that, that, that even Satan disguises himself as uh, an angel of light. Satan cloaks himself in denominational Christianity. Okay? I'm not saying all denominations are bad. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in many denominations, he's completely in control. If you just listen to them, if you just read what they say they believe. This shouldn't be a shock to us. If we're biblically literate, we know this goes on. And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24. False Christ will arise. They'll show great signs and wonders. You say, well, if these people really are Christians, how are they casting out demons and performing many miracles? Man, Satan has power. I don't acknowledge, you know, Satan much because I, I refer to him about as much as the Bible does, which is not very much. He's a secondary issue. He's a dog on a leash. But he has power. He, it, you remember Matthew 24. There'll be great signs and wonders to mislead, if possible, even the elect. You can't be fooled by, by you know, tricks. <laughs> and what appears to be a miracle, it must be God. You know, Karen and I had a conversation this week. A friend in her orbit is uh, dealing with some cult, and, and it's, uh, she started telling me about it, and that they do miracles. And I said, well, okay, my first question is, by, by what power are they doing miracles? You know, we're supposed to be biblically literate, man. We're supposed to be a little bit skeptical. Because somebody can do a sign? 
You're going to follow them? Well, you better find out what they're teaching. You better find out who they love. You better find out if they're in keeping with God's Word. So these, these works listed in verse 22 have nothing to do with the biblical God. It's all about Satan-inspired and empowered false Christianity. Have you noticed when you ask most people, why should God let them in? They do what these people did. They say, they say well, I'm pretty good. Why should God let me into heaven? I'm, I'm pretty good. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't rape anybody. I didn't steal a pencil from work. You know, I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. Uh, that's what these guys are doing, right? That's what these guys are doing. They're telling God how good they are. You're not good. Okay, we've talked about this a lot. You're not good. Nobody's good. I'm not good. Only Christ is good. When God says, why should I let you in? We well, won't ask this question, but hypothetically for sake of argument. If God should ask you this question, we know what to say. Because of the shed blood of Christ. That's why. That's why. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. These guys are saying, hey, Look what we did. <laughs> I love what John MacArthur, famous preacher in the state, says. All the world's religions, including pseudo-Christianity, are based on human accomplishments. Look at me. Look what I did. Biblical Christianity alone is based on divine accomplishment. What does the real Christian say when God asks, let us, why should I let you into heaven? Because of Jesus. It's certainly nothing I've ever done. And here's the foundational key to this text, verse 23. What will Jesus, you tell me from the text, what will Jesus say to these people, these religious people? What will he say to them? What does the text say? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. So why do I say this is the foundational key? What is Christianity? It's a relationship, right? It's always a relationship. It's intimacy with God. No other world, religion, or faith talks like this. We are the friends of God. We are the adopted children of God. We are the sheep of God. We are the bride of Christ. Do you get the sense of intimacy here? No other religion talks like this. It's why I refuse to call Christianity, biblical Christianity, a religion. It's not a religion. It's always relationship. It's always intimacy. It's always about knowing God. Jesus says, I never knew you. Oh, you went to church a lot. Oh, you were on the rolls at the Presbyterian church or the Catholic church or the Baptist church or the church of whatever. Oh, you were on the road. Oh, that's great, but I never knew you. We never had a relationship. You never talked to me. You never prayed to me. You never really praised me. You never loved me. You never obeyed me. I don't know who you are. This is what Jesus will say to the religious, the merely religious. You say, Jim, that's strong. Hey, I'm reading the Bible here. If I'm wrong, you come tell me. And I'll change my sermon. I'll amend it. I'll amend it next week. 
I'll make any clarification I need to next week. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may what? Know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is God's definition of eternal life, John 17, 3. You guys know John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. As tight as the Trinity is, that's how tight I am with my people. That's what's being said there, right? In John 10, 14, and 15. I know my own, my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. As tight as the Trinity is, the Father and the Son, so we are with Him. This is big stuff, right? It's big. It's stunning. It's amazing. It's amazing. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So let's finish up here. He closes the best sermon ever preached with an illustration. You know it, it's very famous. Verse 24, therefore, <clears throat> everyone who hears the words of mine and what? Acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell and great was the fall. So what does Jesus say uh, the real disciple will do with his word? What I always tell you, they act on it. They don't just hear it and muse about it and think it's wonderful and, yeah, I'd have a great conversation with the, with the spouse about it later on after, you know, over dinner, or, you know. They act. And the fool does not act. It's always James 1.22. Prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers only who delude themselves and I've always loved Eugene Peterson's paraphrase <laughs> of that text. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? So I, I don't I don't want any of you or any anyone in your family to be guilty of outrageous nonsense before God. God talk without God acts outrageous nonsense. That's the best Eugene Peterson paraphrase in the Message Bible, I think. So we're believers in this church. We don't preach salvation by works. I'm not preaching salvation by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there'll be fruit. It's impossible that there won't be fruit. It's what Jesus is saying. The good tree will bear good fruit. You'll be on that narrow road, right? You'll be bearing good fruit. You will act upon the words that the Son of God has spoken. And when the storm comes, the final storm, the storm of judgment, just read Revelation. Just read Revelation. 
when that storm comes, you won't be blown away. You'll stand on the rock. And I love the psalmist. They were all over this, right? The psalmists were all over it. Who, David says, who is a rock except our God? So if you're blown over when the, when the storm of judgment comes, it's on you. Again, I'll say it again. God says, here I am. Why then should you die? It's the invitation of the Bible. So you have to love how simple yet powerfully Jesus sums up all of life and eternity here. Listen to me. Listen to this. There are two gates. That's not hard to, to hear and understand. There are two ways. There are two trees. There are two fruits. There are two choices. There are two destinations. This is all of life and eternity in what? Ten verses? Thirteen? Fourteen? There it is for you and me to consider. One way is the broad way. Many are on that path. The other way is narrow. Few are on that path. Jesus Christ has invited men to walk with him. No more chasing bubbles that burst. No more small dreams. No more small lives. It's real Christianity. The gospel according to Jesus it's sold-out, fruit-bearing, narrow-way discipleship. So this is the gospel according to Jesus. I don't know what we'll talk about next week. I'm sure the Lord will let me know in a timely manner, and I'll be happy to show up and share it with you, God willing. So uh, I, I love this series. I think it's important. Um, it's important for you, I think, to be able to maybe talk like this to your friends. Just take them to the passages, man. Take them to the passages, right? They're black and white. Yeah, they're in the red words, but it's, it's all black and white. It's not, it's not hard to understand. The gospel according to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. How easily understandable it is. We really don't have to grope for what your words mean. They're clear. Thank you, Father, again, as we prayed earlier, that you have called us to yourself. You have called us to be your aliens and exiles on this damned planet. This planet that is passing away, this planet that is reserved for fire. Lord, I pray that none of us would be building up treasure here or principally loving something here, something transitory. Because indeed, this planet is leaving. Lord, help us to, to have a right understanding of, of all that we've learned these last four weeks. Lord, I pray that we've all counted the costs and that we have learned that ultimately there is no cost we give up temporal things for God. In coming to you, we, we lay down our affections that we had before and we direct our affections to you. And in your beautiful mercy and grace, oftentimes you resurrect those, those previous affections. 
Lord, I pray that, uh, yeah, we would have a deep and abiding understanding of what You're calling us to here. What it means, what it looks like, how You expect us to incarnate it. Thank You, Father. We praise You and we love You. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. We'll close with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you. And this is a pretty big deal. I may just preach this benediction one day. Listen, the Lord bless you. The Almighty Sovereign, reigning King of heaven and earth, bless you.